This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a horror writer, columnist, and scholar. She is a Rotten Tomatoes-approved critic and the content manager for Dread Central. She is also one half of both the Scarred for Life and Watched Once Never Again podcasts. Beautiful welcomes to Mary Beth McAndrew. Yay! Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Super excited to have you. Thank you for being here. Uh, It's lovely to finally meet. Right? Face-to-face-ish. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. I agree. <laughs> Excellent. Well, before we begin our discussion, I do like to kick things off with a quote about beauty, and I found one today I thought would be very interesting to discuss. Uh, so that quote is not exactly from philosophy for everybody who listens like normal, uh, at least regularly. This is something that is still somewhat academic, but somewhat not. It's a little in the fringe, uh, but we'll get into who and all that later. But I felt this quote applied quite nicely with the film we're going to discuss today. The quote is, The experience of the beautiful makes us believe in a saved or spared world, as if Far from all subjectivity, we might go toward an experience more sovereign than all intention. In beauty, however, there is also a horror, which an entire literature has spoken of. At the same time, it points to something that desists constantly all the time. A little later in our discussion, I'll reveal uh, who said that and where that's from and what it's all about. But first, Mary Beth. Uh, I know you get to ask people this question a lot on your Scarred for Life podcast, <laughs> but it's my turn for you. A turn for you. How did you get involved in this wonderful world of spooks and terror and everything? It's always so funny whenever like someone asks me that question. I'm like, no, I don't know how to answer questions. I only know how to ask them. <laughs> um, right? Yeah. So okay, I have been a fan of horror movies since I was a very young kid. I got into them very early. Uh, probably too early, like four or five, thanks to some irresponsible parents <laughs> and some not not closely monitoring what I was watching. But um, so, you know, I was a super tip, but I was like also a super scared kid. So I watched a lot of horror stuff, but I got really terrified. So like it was kind of like a, this love-hate relationship for a long time. But uh-huh. as I got into high school, I started like really, really falling for horror and like particularly – indie horror that no one had heard of like i didn't care about old movie i was like old movies are boring who cares about old horror so all i wanted to watch were like the weird things in the fringe that you could like only find on sketchy websites so like i am so behind in a lot of like franchises because i didn't think that they were important when i was a kid i obviously know that i was very wrong and that was a very (laughs) misguided thought on my on my part but um it was when i went to college that I took a horror film class, actually, which was really fucking cool. And that was when I realized, oh, I can write about horror movies for, like, work. Like, I can do that. Like, that's kind of cool. So that kind of launched me on my journey to writing. 
because I didn't think that there was like really a path for me to writing about movies. And then that class and you realize, oh, I can do that. And I'm doing it, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Uh, It's good when the establishment actually teaches you that you can do this, by the way. Yeah. Thanks to my cool (laughs) hippie professors, my two very good film studies professors who were like, fuck it, do whatever you want. I was like, Uh great. Well, that's super cool. I'm glad they did because look yeah. at you. You're, you're trailblazing. You're kicking ass. You're, you're, you're jumping out there and getting out there. Thanks. Oh, don't look so scared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't understand how to take compliments. Like, don't. <laughs> it's a problem. I get it. I'm the same. But no, it's it's so great to see, you know, your journey as you've been going along. And uh, I to hear that it came from some motivation from university. I know how university can be both stimulating and destructive to the uh you know confident sector of our brains so uh yeah it's cool that that got you there so you mentioned that you didn't know if you had at least a a door or a pathway to doing that as a career so was that something that was already on your mind before you had that course i always wanted to be a writer um i always wanted to be a writer and i loved movies and so i always wanted to do something with that like that was kind of always my goal like i did newspaper i did my high school newspaper like i always was writing so i wanted to pursue some kind of career in writing and college made like in college i was like oh shit i can write about horror like i can specifically write about horror movies and i wanted to go into academia um didn't happen. Yeah, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, I went to and got my master's, and that was more discouraging than my undergrad <laughs> in terms of like being in. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm in a perpetual like master's degree cycle. That I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever gonna like finish this thing. This thing's uh, rough. Yeah, you're right. It can be a little demoralizing. <laughs> yeah, academia is a wild place. So it's like that. From there, like when I got my master's, I was like, oh, academia is like a little broken. And by a little, I mean like very broken. (laughs) And so I – my goal is to like meld academia, like pop culture and like do like pop academia stuff is kind of like my big goal. So – well, you're making some steps in that direction for sure. And uh, uh, please keep doing it because that's something I'm definitely interested in as well. And I think that we could just carve out – that sort of yes. for everyone, Ugh. and just kind of show the academics like maybe you should apply your theories a little bit. That's fun. Like, don't just write for like four people who are going to read your journal who pay the four hundred dollars mm-hmm. to get access to it. Like, maybe write for people who everybody. No, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> like, all right. I guess we can continue to perpetuate that elitism, but. <laughs> I mean, I get I, maybe it just comes from people who are all jaded that, well, I, you're right. I had to spend 400 bucks a month to get here and then I'm just going to give it away for free. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, somebody's out there who's smarter than I am who could benefit from this. So they, they didn't have the funds that I had for it. So by all means here, if you can take the next step, let's continue this train. Yep. All right. Well, so it sounds like you've had this uh, nice time of just gestating in the horror genre from different perspectives and different realms. Uh, Are there any like recent discoveries then, since you said you didn't watch a lot of the classics when you were younger, like what have you picked up recently that you're like, wow, I wish I had seen this with my young eyes. Oh God. Scarred for life. The podcast I do with Terry (laughs) does that all the time. Like the movie, the movie we're talking about today we did a whole thing about Giallo mm-hmm. on our podcast, like on our, our mini-sodes. And right. I wish I had watched Giallo earlier. 
like I that like that kind of stuff, like that kind of early education about like different genres of horror. I wish I had gotten like that. So now, like rewatching Giallo movies now, I'm really excited. And also, I'm like re I am finally watching all the Halloween movies and all the and like (laughs) so that is going to be fun. I do wish I'd watch those. I feel like I probably would appreciate some of these franchises a little bit more with younger eyes, like a little less jaded about the cheesiness of it and maybe a little bit Mm. more like so but it's still fun to go back and watch them and kind of like appreciate them and see we like why everyone loves them so much and also like appreciate where they kind of stand in the history of the horror universe right yeah i mean there's always going to be that appreciation of where something came from but you're you're right that when when you're younger you kind of you're so overwhelmed by what the fuck is going on that you don't really care that that prop looks like it was made of paper mache or that that mug has moved from one table literally to a chair in the next shot and things like that. Uh, whereas, you know, when you're a more jaded adult and you're kind of taught to be critical about everything that you see, of course, then you're going to start noticing these little things and but I think it's also really cool that, you know, you have the opportunity now through other people's viewpoints and lenses to, in a way, rekindle that perspective when you rewatch a film. Yeah. At least uh, maybe not for the first time, because obviously you have your own perspective from where you live now. But then you hear their perspective and maybe, maybe you get to see what it was like as a child just to be like, yeah. I'm going to try to be scared of it this time and see if I can achieve that. Yeah. Cause that's something like, even if it's the first time watching it, I usually watch it with the lens of like, which scene like would scare a kid? Like which scene are they going to pick? Right. I'm a, we, we always, Terry and I always kind of try to predict which scene the person, like the person we're talking to is going to pick. So that is kind of fun to put that. Per- it's not, I'm not just <laughs> watching it to watch it, but like I can have a little bit more of a perspective to it and have more, even if I don't necessarily like the movie, I can appreciate uh-huh. like why they picked it and why it did terrify them as a kid. As a, as an aesthetics philosopher, I, I'm just so pleased as punch to see people learning through the different lenses and different ways that you can see things, your different attitudes and, and perspectives. I think we're nicely warmed up. And since you were talking about films and Jalo and things that we should have uh, seen as children, I also, this so the film we're going to talk about today uh, is one that, now I wish I had seen this as a child because wow, but it was never on my radar and I don't know why. Not until, I mean, I kind of started to watch it about a year ago when I was at a hotel room, but then I was just so tired. We fell asleep. Uh, and so this gave me an opportunity to finish the movie finally. But I, I, I know everybody knows what the movie is, but I'd love to get the guests to introduce it. So Mary Beth, what film are we going to discuss today? We are discussing Dario Argento's film Phenomena. Phenomena. And it is is a phenomenon in itself, for sure. (laughs) Uh, For anyone that is not familiar with it, I will give you a brief, slightly spoiler-free synopsis. This is a... It it is, for the most part, spoiler-free. Trust me. uh, There are details. Uh, (laughs) But the gist of it is as follows. Jennifer Corvino, the daughter of a famous actor, is an American expat attending a Swiss school for international students. The moment she arrives at the school, she is made to feel miserable by the headmistress and the students. To make matters worse, a psychopathic killer is stalking the neighboring towns and murdering girls roughly her age. Oh, and she is also telepathically linked to all insects. After bouts of sleepwalking, Jennifer is found one night by the kind professor John McGregor, 
who happens to be an entomologist, which is the study of insects. The two work together to try and track down the killer roaming around by using Jennifer's connection with insects to employ them as their eyes and ears. Can they find the killer before the killer finds them? The only mild spoiler there, I suppose, is the employment of the insects, but there's still enough in this movie that uh, if you haven't seen it, usually I would say, you know, continue, go ahead if you want to. But I I have to highly suggest, please watch this movie before we get into these spoilers, because there's enough in here. You got to see. Yeah. Uh huh. (laughs) Yes, there is. Uh, But first things first, since, you know, when I approached you about the podcast and it being about beauty and I told you to pick a film you found beautiful, what made you go, ah, Phenomena? So I watched Phenomena for the first time this year and I actually watched it twice already this year for the pod, for podcasts. And it's a movie that I haven't been able to stop thinking about. I chose this movie because I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. And it is a movie that has like, its imagery is burned in my head. And it, while it might not be Argento's like most colorful or like <laughs> typically beautiful film, I think the imagery is so striking. And the, also the marriage between like a young, a beautiful young girl and insects is something that I was really oh. fascinated with as well. And that kind of union of, monstrosity and femininity in a really interesting way that isn't like you wouldn't expect it but that is kind of why i wanted to bring this movie to the podcast i i love that you did there's a lot of stuff going on not just you know thematically or or narratively but indeed in terms of beauty it was actually really difficult for me to find a quote just because of the amount of options that i had i could have approached it from so many different angles and um Let's see, I think a good starting point, I suppose, you you, you started off with the, how it's kind of not the the Argento that we are going to immediately think of when we hear the name. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the kind of riff on Bava's colors and camera work and stuff is not quite present in this film. It's him completely making like a studio pick for an American 80s crowd. But it, he's definitely got that Argento flair to it. And I think it's still quite a gorgeous film. Are there any visuals that just kind of jump out at you that you want to address right off the bat? So always think of the scene where she's telling all the students, I love you all, and her hair is flying around <laughs> her and the bugs yeah. are building up on the window behind her. That's one of the images I always think of. And the other one is when she falls into the disgusting pool at the end. Interesting choice. Yeah. And it's so weird. Like this movie is not stereotypically, it's not like beautiful, but I think they're like the way that Argento uses like these expectations of beauty versus like nasty is really cool Uh in this movie. Another moment I also think of is when she's using the fly to guide her to the house, like the abandoned house and like those kind of like weird POV shots from the fly and her together. That scene is also really beautiful. It's a weird movie, man. Bugs and girls are like my. Yeah. <laughs> if that w- you know that would have been weird enough, and th- to a degree, when I was done with it, I was like, man, that bug thing could have been done like all the time. I would have loved that. I would have loved to see more like actually talking to bugs, having like a little fly and a string as a pet, something like that. I just think it was so weird, and especially it being the eighties, I was kind of surprised they didn't just go. How weird can we take this? And instead, 
they pulled a giallo on you and just pulled out the weirdest shit around it that they could find mm-hmm. and just shock you left and right with so many unexpected moments. It's like to the point that you're like, oh yeah, the talking to the bugs thing is like the least of our concerns. It's like, yes, really? It's incredible. <laughs> like it's incredible. And like, it's not, I guess technically a giallo cause it's a more supernatural situation because uh-huh. of her psychic link to the bugs, but it's got giallo. It's like, it's got giallo vibes still. Yeah, I mean, we still get the POV shots from a killer. They've got the really fancy killing device. Uh, we even have a glove is found. And, you know, the in fact, in this case, they used the glove to try to track down the killer. So I guess it's like a proto, not proto, but I guess like a pseudo Jallo of sorts. Yeah. For an audience that probably wouldn't have known what Jallos really were to begin yeah. with. Yeah. I mean, you get Jennifer Connelly, Donald Pleasance. We kind of know who they're marketing it towards at this point. But then you see who all wrote it. (laughs) And you're like, of course, you couldn't just make a straight laced uh, supernatural thriller. No. 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 Why would they do that? So one of the scenes you mentioned, I think that would be one of the ones that if we were going to talk in a very typical way, yeah, the the scene with her hair flowing and just, you know, all of the kids have been teasing her because they found a letter to her father where she's kind of confessing, I think I can talk to Bugs, dad. And they just all go like, hey, Jennifer, who am I? And start teasing her really badly. And the fact that she just kind of turns to, to them and is like, I love you. It's so Jennifer Connelly in the 80s to me, actually. It really is that you have no power over me scene all over yep. again from Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Do you know, did it? Would, did Labyrinth come out before or after this? Okay, this was 85. And 85. I think this was the first, I think this was before Labyrinth. Wow. She's, God, look, yeah, it's 86 for Labyrinth. Yeah. That's incredible. Like, okay. her first movies were pheno- like Phenomena and Labyrinth, like, uh-huh. Okay, I guess just start your career off with a ridiculous thing, <laughs> like whatever. She had the look for it too. I mean, that, that and there's another aspect of beauty. I mentioned this on an episode where we discussed the Lost Boys, where you know, physical beauty is an, an aspect of the, the 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 wider discourse on it that uh, can be discussed. And with her, it's like she already looked like a 40s or a 50s starlet with a long career when she was like 12. Yeah, and she has like <laughs> so. that perfect like young girl look like she's got a really youthful face and long brown hair mm. like she kind of embodies that like the creepy like virginal kind of look i think too of like a young beautiful girl yeah and creepy. she has enough maturity to just seem like she can overpower everybody who's on set or at least in the shot and she she does it too there's so many scenes where she's talking to somebody and she just has her, her legs crossed and she just kind of smirks at them like yeah i know who i am <laughs> she's yeah. such a brat <laughs> In this movie, yeah. like she really is a brat. Like she's a, she's the hero, but also like she is like very good at playing a fourteen-year-old brat who wants her way. Who's like, Dad, give me the money. I'm coming home. And you're like, Oh my lord, you are like, <laughs> I I do love a good dislike, di- like unlikable female protagonist, but especially when she's mm-hmm. a teenage girl and you're not trying to make her like some I like idealized version of a teenage girl, but like an actual right. like brat. Like I was a brat when I was fourteen. Like I definitely was an asshole so it's like okay good we have like a <laughs> it's not just her being like an idealized person i thought <laughs> yeah i was very concerned at the start of the film when i first saw it thinking like because you see her in her car and you know she's all prim and proper i'm like oh god are we gonna get this like kind of mary Sueish, very perfect beyond perfect character who 
has the perfect life, who has the perfect look, but is also really, really kind and naive and wonderful. And oh, please don't hurt her. She's perfect. And I'm like, no, all these kids are little shits. They're all trying to do whatever they need to do. Granted, they're in a situation where the school is just atrocious and very dogmatic to these kids. Uh, So no wonder they're wandering off and getting killed. Um, yeah, like, like, why would you stay there if you can just go fuck around and, and smoke cigarettes with your friends, you know? So I, I loved that she indeed kind of talks back to people. What is this EEG shit? Take it off of me. I don't need to know anything. I don't have a problem. I just sleepwalk randomly. What was the what other thing she did? I don't know. It was always made me laugh when she talked to everybody, like just sass them back. She was like, no, no, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. I will not be treated this way. <laughs> well, she's the queen in a sense, I suppose. You know, if we we're going to use the like, kind of insect terminology, oh, all true, the yeah, attracted to her. So that might be the the kind of metaphor that they're putting there, uh, and she plays it to perfection, I have to say. And this, so yeah, when you first told me about phenomena was your choice, like, okay, I, I was thinking of the score, I was thinking of the the costume and all the stuff. Like, yes, cool. And I watched it again. I'm like, wow, yeah, I forgot this movie's uh, this is a gruesome film. There's a lot of a lot of horrible in this movie. Yep. Uh, probably some of the best kills of Argento's whole line of murders, even though it doesn't get the attention that a lot of his other films get, which is strange to me, considering we do have a kind of multi piece together spear. We have a chimp that wields a razor blade. We have <laughs> Inga. <laughs> Inga. Yes. Uh, and we have the sarcophagus. Uh, was the the great sarcophagus fly? I think is what this is called. Yep. All kinds of really just nasty stuff in this movie, and I'm really happy that you brought it in because there is this interplay between the beautiful and the disgusting in this movie, and I love how Argento is kind of messing around with it. In a way, it kind of felt to me like you know where Fulci started making some Jallos to see like, see, I can play, I can do Argento's game, I can make an Argento movie. I, it's almost like he looked at them and said, I can make a Fulci movie. And he made yes. this wacky, yes, yes, nasty yes. Especially at the end that has like, okay, can we do spoiler? Are we spoilery? Can I do We are some? spoilery all the way. Okay, yeah. sweet. Um, the fucking poltergeist pool, but 10 uh-huh. times worse at the end when she just falls. And like, she won't get out of it. And she just is like this. Okay. Let me explain this to the listener. <laughs> at the end of the film, she basically falls into this giant, concrete pool of like maggots and gross and just like decomposing bodies it's basically where they've been hiding all the bodies so it's just like human body Uh soup it's disgusting and she is just flailing around like beautiful jennifer Connolly is like flailing around like covered in gore and it's just like think the poltergeist scene with the pool but worse because it's just visceral nasty goop yeah and it's like in her mouth. Blood. It's disgusting. It's like, ooh, but also really cool. Because it's like, Argent, like I don't know. <laughs> it's like you said, it's him doing a Fulci movie and having this nasty shit at the end. This whole third act to me felt like the moment. He's like, I'm doing a Fulci movie. From the moment that uh, Daria Nicolodi picks her up oh, yes. and then it's like, come to my house. And then starts acting really suspicious for no reason all of a sudden. Uh, and then gives her the pills. This is where it starts to kick off. Iron Maiden kicks in. <laughs> yeah, Iron Maiden. Uh, but but right before then, she has this pill. And she's like, oh, my God, it's poison. So she starts coughing. And 
it's one thing to have somebody just shove their fingers down their throat and then vomit for a moment. That's enough to make somebody go, oh, God, I didn't even see that. But to do it for about a minute and a half straight of just this white, foamy vomit uh, just yes. co- coming up out of Jennifer Connelly's mouth. This is when you could tell it's her first movie because I don't think if this was post Labyrinth, Jennifer Connelly would be signing up for the foam vomit uh, role. Uh, <laughs> she'd have, you know, stipulations in her contract at that point. But nope, she just covers the sink vomiting over and over and over again. And, you know, we are dealing with a, an Italian film with a mono soundtrack. So the sound that comes out of her is just the worst. I'm not going to emulate any of that for anybody because, like, we don't need that kind of ASMR in the show. But <laughs> I was wearing headphones while watching this. I wasn't even looking through most of it. I just remember saying out loud, like, okay, we get it. Okay, I understand what's happening in the scene now. And then, of course, you get to what you're talking about, the human soup. And it also goes on for a very long time. And you hear how thick the water is. Yeah. <laughs> they did a great job with the sound design in this movie to just get these textures of everything. And for me, I, I actually think that, you know, there's a beauty in that. There, there is. Beauty in this craftsmanship of making this such a visceral experience. I agree. I totally agree. Because, well, and like, while, also while she's vomiting, there's like the maggots that are everywhere, too. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. So just like on top of that, there's just maggots wriggling around and Dario Nicolodi screaming at her. And I mean. so there is this really beautiful balance of beauty and, but not just like beauty the way we think of it, but like you said, beauty and creating the disgusting and like placing it the way he does and not always reveling in it, but like placing it in the right moments and reveling in it for the right amount of time. It's like he knows exactly when he wants you to feel repulsed by this film. And it's really impressive because it works because Jesus, you're not ex- like you get the bugs, which are gross. Like, yeah, bugs are icky. But then you're like, oh, but you don't even know what's coming for you. Like, if you think yeah, that's right? disgusting, you don't know what you're about to see. I was already impressed when they had the head in the kind of I don't even like this like mini miniature greenhouse that they're carrying this head around in. And when they <laughs> took it to the the doctor and said, Hey, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the decomposition here? Since you know a lot about the bugs, which I always thought, do people do that? I didn't know that that was a thing that you could go to a bug specialist about decomposition, but I, the Swiss, I suppose have their other ways of doing things. I feel like you can do that or, I also feel like most people who work in death probably know about the bugs that of deep composition. Yeah. Like that would be my thought is that like you would are, if you're working in death, you would know. Yeah. This is where it does feel like a jello to me. Cause they're like, well, it, it's a bug movie. Donald Pleasant's in a fucking wheelchair. He's just got a terrible Scottish <laughs> accent and he's just yeah. like chilling with a bunch of bugs in his beautiful giant giallo house. Like that's a giallo <laughs> house. If I've ever fucking seen one, it really is. It, it's straight out of Tenebrae. Like, but that's another beautiful thing about giallo is like you can always clock the architecture in a giallo. Like it's always like a giant house with weird architecture and a lot of sharp angles, but it's really cool to look at. <laughs> and a lot of windows. A lot of windows with like ornamentation <laughs> and, and grills. And, you know, there's always got to be at least one head going through a pane of glass yes. from these windows mm-hmm. if you're in an Argento giallo. Yeah. Uh, which I'm happy he got out of the way very quickly in this movie. I think it's like the very first murder 
in possibly one of the more brutal versions of that I've seen because the glass falls into her eyes in slow motion. And I feel very bad for that actress. I hope that was a doll. <laughs> uh, but yeah, with Donald Pleasance's house, yeah, like it could have been, you could have just taken that screenshot and just said, this is Dario Argento. And you would have been like, so it's one of his Jalo films, right? Just the way the tables look, the stacks of books, all of it looks exactly on point to the kind of architecture that you would see normally. Very grotto-esque is kind of what you, you usually see. Yeah. It's sort of like ranches. I want to know who like owns those houses and lives in them full time. Cause like, Oh, I just yeah. want to know Did they keep them that way. Now they better have kept them that way. Don't ever change you that. It's so. incredible. <laughs> you would hope so. I'm sure they've added some really horrible modern touches to it that we don't even want to know. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> no. Right. Uh, and then there's the fashion, of course, that was actually the angle I was originally going to go with, but I couldn't find a quote in time. But I did really want to talk about it because not only is it just you, you can just see it. It's like, OK, Jennifer Connelly is indeed, you know, of course, playing a rich character from a rich family. And they show this with all the different outfits that she's wearing. But it really struck me when you see the opening credits that the names right there. Huge. It's like costumes by Giorgio Armani. I was like, holy shit. All of these costumes are Giorgio Armani. That is you're making a point then if you're getting Armani to do your costumes. I forgot. I forgot that it was Armani and it's incredible that it's like right <laughs> in the beginning. It's like that. It's like the one, two punch of like Iron Maiden and then Giorgio Armani. Yeah. And you're like, is this a fucking music video? Like for like a brand? <laughs> like, what is this? And like, it kind of is like, let's be honest, like a little bit like that. It feels like one, but it's incredible. Cause you're like, okay, I know exactly like the, like where the aesthetics are going here. Like you <laughs> sets that expectation very quickly about like what is about to happen even though you don't actually know what's going to happen you have like a vibe in your head i feel like yeah you know that you're getting into a world of excess most likely you are getting involved in something that is just beyond your cultural sphere yes something very (laughs) something very strange that's going to be very different and very good yes yes uh but also just thematically or not thematically uh but just you know in the details of the the plot as well i mean it was no surprise that we get introduced to our protagonist then in the back of like a Bentley with a caretaker and like the 14 year old girl is dressed better than the adults who are sitting in the car, the lavish estate that the school is a part of as well, which in a way rivals the, uh, the dance Academy in Suspiria for just most ominous looking building. But like there's that parallel of Susie Banyan going to the dance Academy in Suspiria, but she's by herself and has like no money mm. in the back of a taxi. And then you have mm. Jennifer Connelly's character back of a Bentley going to a prestigious place, but in a much more like confident kind of in a way. So it's, it's interesting parallels that these movies have that I hadn't thought about a lot before, but this time around I was like, Oh, there are some weird parallels between these two films even though like this one like Suspiria and like the witch movies kind of exist in their own little like trilogy mm-hmm. trilogy is it three there's three of them correct yeah there's three of them the yeah film, but like I don't know I didn't think about that I haven't thought about that before in terms of their parallels yeah now that you mentioned I'm, I'm imagining I'm just thinking of all kinds of different uh parallels there are yeah between them but uh, that's a podcast for another day <laughs> But uh, yeah, so definitely watch both Suspiria and Phenomena back to back. See if you can spot some parallels. Good double feature for you right there. Seriously. So I have a question for you. I've asked a couple people this before, but I think it's just a very interesting one, especially for someone I know that is more 
has a scholarly background, but is also in more to this kind of pop academia, like how you put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, What is beauty to you? What does that mean to you in a more analytical sense? Yeah. Um, I mean, I have like a super weird answer and I don't know if it's what you're looking for, but I'm just going to go with my gut here. Looking for nothing. (laughs) I, um, when I think of beauty, now I think of something that can be destroyed. Actually, I think of beauty oh. in the concept of how it can be manipulated and can be changed. Because I think there's such a, like, and what I love about horror, especially, and like really, some of my favorite horror movies are movies that take that like typical expectation of beauty, especially in like women, and destroy it and say fuck that, and kind of want to manipulate what we think of as, of what beauty is and the kind of concept of mm-hmm. beauty. So. To me, it's something that can be manipulated and changed to make a broader point about our societal obsession with aesthetics. Ah, that's a fire answer. I appreciate that one. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. I see where you're coming from with that. Yeah. And especially from that, that specific perspective, when we're talking about how like it's in, in, in the world, in the way that we engage with beautiful things, especially beautiful people. And it's both an imposition, but also a deconstruction all at the same time. So we can tell somebody you have a standard of beauty, but at the same time you hold them to such a standard of beauty that it breaks them down and you can completely strip it away. And it's a control thing. Um, hmm. Hadn't thought of that answer. I've seen a lot of scholars talk about it this way. And it's funny that you should have that perspective. Because I'm glad I brought the quote in that I brought. That actually comes from a philosopher by the name of... I'm, I'm going to butcher this name. I'm so sorry. It's a French name. And it's a long one. Um, Anna de Fomentea. Uh, she was a philosopher uh, from Paris. And she just also a psychoanalyst. So she talked in a very Mm. broad sense about just like the human condition basically. And this is actually from a short book that, uh, or at least a section of a book called at the risk of beauty. Mm. So it's more of this poetic approach. That's why I said it's kind of philosophical, but it's a philosopher talking poetically about the concept of beauty and risk in general. The whole book was about risk. And so in her perspective, beauty is destructive. So it is a powerful experience. As you were saying, you do have the risk of destroying that which is beautiful and you can do so quite easily. You also have the risk that it attacks you Mm -hmm. and in return when we experience beautiful things, they usually overwhelm us and it's, it's a joy. It's, it's a lot of pleasure that you can get out of beauty, but that pleasure can turn into mania. And as she says, that pleasure can turn into horror Mm -hmm. because of this inability for us to control the feeling that we're having and the control. And, 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 uh, I can't think of a better word, but it is control that it has over us, the power that it has over us. Uh, It's a very interesting piece, and I love that she's decided to use poetic, beautiful language to prove her point throughout the whole thing. Um, And I felt that was applicable with phenomena yeah, because of what we were talking about, that interplay between the beautiful and the, the, the disgusting, the horrible, but also just the way 
beauty is attacked in this film continuously. It is destroyed constantly. And then what, where do we find beauty in? Uh, I love that one of the first things you brought up was, oh, when the bugs cover the building. The bugs are where the beauty seemed to like really come. I've never seen a bug that I had the same feeling that I had with like a small dog ever until this movie. Isn't it weird? It's weird. <laughs> well, I'm like, as you said, with the, with beauty, though, that is such a core to this movie because of Daria Nicoletti's character's son, who has yeah. facial deformities. And the deaths are happening to beautiful young women. Um, mm-hmm. And then she's hiding this this deformed son away from everybody. And so there is this, like, tension and aesthetics about, like, that anger and what it means to, like, have beauty versus be denied that beauty and how you're treated as well. And I think a lot of mm-hmm. his – a lot I feel like a lot of Argento's movies have a lot to do with that too, though. Like, yes. the be- – being a beautiful person and what happens when you're not a beautiful person is like a lot of it's like to put it very simply like what you see in his movies like hot people being murdered by someone who is not say like not typically hot right. <laughs> that makes sense and they're usually being triggered by something to do with aesthetics on some level i mean his very first one already had that with the the, the bird of the crystal plumage you had yeah being triggered by art you know that that yep. is already the, the deciding factor I think that also happens in Deep Red as well. That it, is it based on art? Uh, I don't not think as much it's as art in Deep Red as much. Deep Red. Not as much, no. I think that's just because there are around a lot of art galleries that my brain is going there. And you have the drawing on the wall. Yeah, and in this one, it, it's because of that child as well. That was that was the moment that I was like, okay, what? Hold on. Like, hold, I had to like put the brakes on for just a moment. <laughs> it's like pool, sun, creepy Shit, basement. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like what movie am i watching it's very changed very quickly <laughs> and you're so confused mm-hmm. as to how they're going to explain this because the way you just described it is the way you experience it jennifer Connolly is just like a pinball flopping around into all these different spaces and she sees this thing and then there's also this thing this horrible thing's over here and it leads up to that. And then she's like, okay, I think I'm okay. She gets on a boat. Nope, the sun's there trying to stab her with a spear in the boat. Then she she manages to flip the boat because uh, of the bugs start eating his face. Then you ever just the, summon the, a swarm of flies to eat the boy yeah. trying to attack you in the middle of the that water? That great power. I That's love that. badass. It is. It's fucking badass. <laughs> and then they pull a Jason Voorhees and it's like, oh, is he dead? No, he's not dead. He pops up out of the fire. Then it's all Okay. Uh, everything's happening. She sees her uncle. I think it's her uncle. Uh, at least, no, no, no. The, no, uh, he's like attorney. the, yeah, like the caretaker. Yeah. And then he's dead. And then and we get like, <gasps> with the piece of geez. sheet metal, by the way. What the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah. Like, just... Swing. <laughs> <laughs> like, where'd she get it? I don't know. Who cares? That's the best part about no. these movies. You're like, don't fucking ask <laughs> questions. You just had exactly. it. Like, she had a sharp piece of metal and she just decapitated she that man. <laughs> Yes, she did with his thick, thick neck. <laughs> uh, and I mean, one hit too. bam, head gone and great shock moment. But then we're just sitting there with Jennifer, like Jennifer, I don't know either. I'm sorry. None of us can figure out what's going on right now. And then we get the exposition from Daria Nicolodi, which is like two sentences of no explanation as to why she's killed all these girls no. or if she even did it. 
I, I kind of got the vibe maybe her son was doing it. Okay, thank you. Because I was like, wait, hold on. I've seen this movie three times now, and I still can't actually tell you what truly happened. Like, I know what happened, but like, who did what? I'm not entirely sure. They don't say, she says she's killed the cop and the attorney oh, and the professor. That's it. That was just to protect her son. But I'm like, from what? From getting that cop- was the. Yeah, he probably, I bet he was, I bet he was killing those women because they were pretty young women. That was my vibe is that like he was some kind of weird yeah. relationship to him being jealous of their beauty. If that's the case, that is a fantastic story and plays into a lot of the things that I study. Uh, there's this wonderful book on the politics of ugliness, which, Ooh. yeah, it's, uh, if you want, I can send you um, like the, the, the deets for that, like you know, the, the, the codes and everything for it. It's, yeah. it's a wonderful book that I, I got from our university and it's, uh, it deconstructs ugliness from multiple, multiple political perspectives so first it goes into detail on the different facets of ugliness, you know, disgust, physical beauty versus ugliness versus uh, racial distinctions, uh, skin color, everything. So it goes into injustice, essentially. Okay. And then each chapter and section are different authors who are tackling this from their perspectives and from their own either research of course or their you know lived experiences on how human bodies tend to be politicized and this movie i think would be if that is what they're getting at is that this kid's doing it out of some sort of envy or just sheer rage from his mother abusing him i think that's a phenomenal <laughs> example of uh <laughs> thank you of, <laughs> What they're kind of talking about, you know, you're actually seeing the ugliness in a way fighting back against beauty because beauty is revered without any critique, I guess, is the best way to look at it. Yeah. Beauty is a state within which we just accept. That's an interesting kind of point of discussion that it opens up, in my opinion. <laughs> no, I'm so, now I'm trying to figure out if they ever actually if say, but they don't, who like who was killing or why, but yeah, the vibe I always got was that he was, it was his, he was getting revenge for some perceived like slight of beautiful women existing. And I think there is a fascinating discussion about this, this like disability in there, but of course, like it's not very, it's not very deep because these films don't necessarily aren't the most careful about the portrayal (laughs) of disability (laughs) and of people who are not, able-bodied or like have a norm like what we perceive as a normal body and i think Mm -hmm. these this movie and a lot of other movies like this open up discussions about disability and horror that i love reading from people like who do disability studies i think there's some really fascinating stuff but yes i think giallo movies deal with the politics of ugliness in general in a fascinating way. And this one I think deals with it in like a very typical like aesthetic. You do not appear the way that you are supposed to appear. But I also think there is another layer about how she treats her son. And because you have those moments where there's like, she talks about her son to Jennifer Connelly's character and they're walking through the house and she sees a a doll and she's like, Oh my God, it's your son. And it's a doll. And she like throws the doll around and it's super awkward and very bizarre but you, there's obviously like anger and rage about her son, like around her son and like resentment. 
that it's never gotten into. And that's what I'm like, this movie, I'm so fascinated with this relation, like the relationship between this mother and son. And I'm like, wait, shit, you threw all of this at us at the end. And there's so many questions mm. and it could be like such an interesting movie. I feel like, like, <laughs> <laughs> Give me Dario Gento's version of Psycho with <laughs> like the two of them <laughs> living in that house together. That would be incredible. I would love to see what they do with that. Right? But like, I also think it's interesting, like in talking about ugliness and disability, that like ugliness is what makes someone kill. You know what I mean? Like mm. the co- the idea that society would make you feel so ugly that you murder people who are beautiful. Like, isn't that a wild concept? Like in your, like just to think about that and like how perceptions of beauty and like that portrayal of ugly versus beauty. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that just popped into my head and thinking about that. Yeah. On paper, it, you know, it's very striking. If you just think of it in those words, like, <laughs> yeah. wow, that is, but then if you just take, just a small magnifying glass to the world that we live in. Just look through it real quick. You're like, isn't that kind of how we're pitted against each other most That's of the time true. anyway? Yeah. And, and it's gotten better. I mean, we're, we're both products of the late eighties, early nineties when, you know, you couldn't escape magazine covers and every commercial having a supermodel on it. And, you know, like the, the, the newest, uh, uh, what was it like sports illustrated model being on the cover? That was like a newsworthy event that we had to talk about what beautiful person was going to be in the limelight here in about a week or so. And people were just like, Oh, really excited for it. And I think we've gotten a little past that. People did finally get a little bored with just body aesthetics as the only thing that we could talk about. Yeah. But it's still happening. There's still those systems that were employed at that time are still running rampant. They're still going, uh, we're in constant conflict with them as well, and especially when it comes to, dis- to disability. I think that's the biggest one. So, okay, maybe aesthetically we might be a bit more open and be like, ah, oh, people are people, bodies are bodies, everybody is beautiful. But then if you have somebody who has a disability saying, yeah, but what if you're just incapable of continuing physically in the world that has been created Yep. and you're just told to deal with it? So, you know, if you are disabled in a physical sense, this world is not made for you still to this day. Mm -hmm. And although there are a lot of us who are trying to make sure that there's more awareness of it. And I think, you know, even though I'm quite aware of it, I definitely have a hard time always being aware of it. Yeah. Uh, Ableism is really easy to slip into because you're just used to yourself basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if somebody has a limitation you don't have, how can you, how can you count for it without having to take extra steps and measures? And I think right now, the world is hard to add extra steps and measures to on a second by second basis. But I do love how even watching an older movie from 85, this wacky ass kind of pseudo Jalo film, we're able to strike a conversation that addresses these issues. And as you were saying, like all of these movies kind of in their own way, address them not very well, but it is like, it's almost like Argento's attempt to be like, no, no, no. I'm I'm socially aware. Look, look. The man in the wheelchair said about it, and he's 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 made his comment. So I've put it in the movie. Are you happy now? That's kind of how it felt a little bit. But it's there. 
I'm sorry. It's, but it's, it's callous, though. It is. It's callous. It, it's a good way to put it. Like, yeah. he tries to address it because, yeah, like you said, like the doctor, the entomologist, is in a wheelchair. So there are multiple yeah. levels of disability in this film, which we don't usually, you know what? That's not typical in these kinds of, in these movies. So it's like, not at all. Wow. Okay. There actually is some disability representation in here that's like quasi, like, decent for 1985 but don't worry we uh-huh. still have the ugly kid evil <laughs> kid, yeah. ugly kid with a facial like facial issue like facial not deformity what's the right word i'm trying to find here like a kid who is disabled is just like hidden in a basement and he's the bad guy uh-huh. and he's killing people probably so don't worry we have both sides but i guess <laughs> better than having the evil side only yeah, exactly. I think most of the time in, in, in those slashers, you only, I mean, look at Jason Voorhees. You only get the evil side. It's only because we have that first movie from the perspective of his mother, who is distraught by how people treated him. Do we have a backstory enough that we can apply to Jason and go, I kind of get you, boy. You know, like, you know, you, you are you, like boy. a, I get you. I understand you. Go get him. <laughs> Uh, they treated you, they did you raw, basically. It's kind of how it There goes. is a really good disabled character in fra- uh, part two, though. There's a character in a wheelchair who was actually, it's actually. Very true. Su- surpri- I was very surprised. I was like, Friday the 13th movie with a character in a wheelchair. And it's like quasi thoughtful. It's also a hunk of meat. Yeah. Oh, 100%, <laughs> which is incredible. Yeah. No. It's not perfect, but like, you know what? We don't usually get like hot, disabled people in movies. That's also true. You know what I mean? Like, it's true. always a very specific vision of what disability looks like, which is such bullshit. But yeah. You know. Exactly. Still, though, this movie uh, seems to approach it. Uh, there is a more like philosophical flair to it, I suppose. It has that dreamlike aspect to it. It does seem to delve a little bit more into the psychological state of its characters than your average Jalo probably would have. <laughs> yeah. So I do appreciate it on those levels. I don't know if there's any more about this particular topic of discussion that you wanted to broach before maybe going to another point. Ooh, yeah. Well, yeah. We, we've tapped out the ugly beauty uh, wars, basically. <laughs> well, that brings me to an aspect of cinema that I adore and it doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And that's the sound. I think the sound in this, like the score of this film is gorgeous. Love it a lot. So much Iron Maiden. (laughs) So much is fucking guitar ripping in this movie. (laughs) The Iron Maiden really threw me off. I have to say not in a bad way. It just took me by surprise. It's fucking weird. Like why? Mm. But also why not? You know what I mean? Like, fuck it. That was their, their thoughts. I also loved how in the credits, how they were like, oh, I forgot how they phrased it, but something like, uh, almost like it was like a cordial exchange that they allowed them to put it in there, like very happily provided by or something like that. So it, happily it didn't have that very provided by exactly very happily to have been paid for uh, <laughs> to be put into your movie. Yeah, the Iron Maiden was a very interesting choice. I guess if you're going to do intensity in in the 80s you might as well throw in some pretty you know epic hair metal in there um it's an interesting you know combination with the the original score that, that we have for the film like we, we have some of theme to this with the 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 beautiful vocals with it that lead up to this just 
intense typical goblin style yeah psychedelic rock kind of sound to it uh i don't know was this something that really struck you as well when you're watching it or is it something that kind of like went to the background with all the other the sound did unfortunately go to the background for me like Mm. besides the iron maiden stuff it didn't the only other thing that the sound that stuck out was like the use of the bug sound the bug stuff too you know what i mean like the very exaggerated sounds of bugs buzzing (laughs) that i didn't really like think about this and i usually love like i usually think about the scores in argento's films because it's goblin but mm-hmm. I guess in this one, like the the weird needle drops, I think got me got like, distracted me a little bit from the original soundtrack or the original score. I get that. I get that. And I, I'm I'm fresh off of my viewing of it too. So that theme, that whole thing, is really stuck in my head. And the uh, for a moment, I even was thinking, like, is this from another movie? It sounded so much like something they could have made for any Argento movie. Uh, but then I was like, well, they're playing it enough. I think it's original to this film. What always strikes me with the use of like music in Argento's films is how he uses it to punctuate things. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't seem to care too much about subtlety in regards to of any kind, but <laughs> in regards to how he's building an emotion or something. He just wants to really let you know, this is a memorable moment. You should be paying attention. And what the moment that, I mean, apart from the Iron Maiden, I will say those moments really like, like she's distressed. We're going to put Iron Maiden on right now. There was this moment where she sees the firefly. That one struck me really strongly because it is the long version of the theme so we get more of that psychedelic rock aspect of it and it just keeps going and it swells and it gets bigger and it's more epic. And normally if you were to watch a movie that had this level of a soundtrack going in this scene, you would imagine this firefly would be lighting up the whole area. She was doing magical circles around it or something. They were flying together throughout the, the, the streets of, of, of Switzerland. And really it's just the slow, she's just walking in the, in, in the backyard and it just very slowly takes her to where she needs to go. But yeah. they're just kind of like, is it this cool? She's following a firefly. And it is the most epic, like, following a firefly moment I've ever seen. Uh, I just That's what really got me is how Argento really is using this music to convey to you, like, her emotions, I suppose. That's how she's feeling. Yeah. Sorry, I just pulled up the soundtrack for a hot second just to re- refresh my memory super quick. and Because it, <laughs> it has that, like, it starts out... And, like. Lab, not like labyrinth, but like in my head, I got like that vibe of like the delicate, right? And then it's like the the fucking guitars come in, which matches like the Iron Maiden vibe really well too, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but yeah, like you said, the 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 soundtrack, the score punctuates all that stuff really well. I also love how the Iron Maiden just wasn't used consistently because it starts with a murder. I'm used to that. Like you get these really intense moments of score when a murder is about to take place. But with her fishing a phone out of the wall, I know she's really tense at that moment, but it is really funny to me how that was a super, super intense amount of music that they were playing. Yeah, that, no, it is interesting to think about it that way with uh, the way that Iron Maiden is used. I hadn't thought about it like that. It was just like, oh, I, more Iron Maiden. But yeah, like 
that kind of emotional like music with that kind of emotional intensity is safe for more violent moments and this one it's more of like an interiority thing for her which is interesting to have that connection between murder and her own like mental space which i mean mm. i think that might be going a little bit too deep than what they, <laughs> what they were going for but i guess there is that kind of interesting connection if you think about it of like her chaotic mental space versus the chaos of all of the deaths that have like been happening on screen Interesting. that's a fair point though yeah i mean you're right it might be a little deeper than what they were you know intending but uh <laughs> i guess we can also kind of psychoanalyze the people making the film and what they're uh you're putting on there and um yeah now that you mentioned it i never really considered it in, the, in that sense that the, the, the juxtaposition of those two in a meaningful way uh, and granted it is a moment of tension so i suppose yeah on, on their base level of what they're doing. They're just calling his tension. We paid for this. But also because now that she's in the house of the murderer, it's like, it's that kind of maybe that the musical kind of motif connects the fact that whoever was murdering in those scenes and now are like, they are one and the same too. Fair. That's, but that still doesn't give us the answer of who is killing. Cause the two people, It also doesn't make it like it's the, the level of nonsense of it, too. It's like, well, at no point do I see this weapon at like child height killing anybody. You think that would like, be like, a, a, like an indicator early on in the movie that like there's a ch- it's like a child sized person doing this? I don't. Okay. There's only one murder I can think of where they did that. And that was the very first one because you do have the chains being ripped off the wall. Yes. So- He's just that was home. definitely him in that one. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, that wasn't with the really cool, you know, multi-purpose spear. So <laughs> th- then I'm like, is that was that her? Is she just continuing on for him in a very Mrs. Voorhees kind of way? Or do they have that weird symbiotic relationship that his anger drives her to kill on, on behalf of his emotions? And tell me, movie, just tell me what it is. <laughs> And then we could have help said more me about understand. It. Just a little. Artento said, "No, you don't get to understand." <laughs> like, who cares about understanding? Look at how Jennifer Connelly is in the gloop. <laughs> Look at this fucking chimpanzee <laughs> fuck someone up. Yeah. Yes. So, funnily, I listened to your podcast episode of Scarred for Life about this before. Oh yeah. Before I had ever finished the movie. So I remember you all mentioning like, and the chimpanzee with the razor blade. So I, I was watching the rest of this movie thinking like, did Inga kill everybody? I was just trying to say, like, how does this work? Is Inga the murderer? How is this? I also happen? thought that Inga was the murderer when I first saw it. <laughs> and I was so stoked for it. But you know what? She's not the murderer. No. She's the hero. Inga's the fucking hero. It, and I love that because apparently that chimp is also just a pain in the ass to work with. Hell yeah. So, like, didn't it bite Donald Pleasance once? I think it did, which is yeah. terrifying because chimps are really fucking strong. That yeah. shit. No, thank you. Their teeth are very big and they're very strong and I don't like it. Chimps scare me. Could you imagine being Jennifer Connelly who has to fucking boop it in the nose with her own nose and, and pet the thing after watching like, it? Death. Death is upon me. <laughs> oh, what a... Knock, knock, knocking on death's door with this fucking chimpanzee in my face. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I, I was tense for everybody in this film watching it because, yeah, you, you know, that is the thing with like, I sometimes get when they'll put a CGI animal in a movie, they'll be like, might not look as good, but nobody's in danger. 
<laughs> I'm super stoked because my next when uh, I think one of my next tattoos is going to be Inga holding the switchblade or holding the oh. razor blade though like right on my arm above my thing tattoo I want to get like a big red circle and then I want to get her wielding the laser blade above my shoulder fit. that is a perfect fit okay it's just, it's just incredible this movie's so that, incredible it's a big impact on my brain <laughs> I was gonna say so it made that big of an impact that you're gonna get it immortalized on your skin yeah, I was like, when we were watching all the Argento movies, like this one stuck out to me as the one that was like, I think the most unique in that mm-hmm. it's fucking wild. Like, and I think there's something really powerful to me about a young girl who can control bugs. Like, yeah, it's yeah. fucking weird. But there's something really cool about having a young girl who doesn't have this like beautiful, desirable power, but she also she actually works with death in a really fascinating way. And like, isn't scared of that and is very cool. Like the whole time, there's no fear there's no like ew bugs from her. It's this like be- really like sensitive relationship between her and these animals that we think are disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really cool to see that kind of connection that a female character has with the quote unquote disgusting and makes it her own and finds power in that. I think it's really fucking cool. And then it comes to death and like, she's like all about death and doesn't seem terrified of it or like rotting flesh until she's in the goop. But, like, anyone would be scared if they were in the goop. That's yeah. pretty fucking nasty. I mean, liquid skin isn't really my jam either. <laughs> nah. <laughs> but, like, there's, just like, this power with her that I really love yes. that really stuck out to me. And, like, again, I, I love it when female characters, especially female characters, have these nasty powers that are, like, make them gross, but they're actually badass. Like, it's just my favorite thing to see women allowed to be nasty and have not so typically like feminine or beautiful or good characteristics. It's just, I think it's so much more interesting and so much more fascinating for me to watch on screen. And it's really cool. Wholeheartedly agree with that. And to an earlier point that we were making, I really love that they chose to give you this kind of cherub angel, like kind of, appearance in this person there's this really yep porcelain doll of a girl who's like don't hurt the bee i like the bee and is like letting the bee crawl up her shirt and move it around and uh even with the fly when she's introducing like this fly exclusively eats dead human bodies and you will only find it in the bodies of human beings and it's disgusting. But it's going to be your best friend now. She's like, okay. And it's like crawling on her. And she's like, hi, friend. And uh, I love that contrast right there. Because she is the least likely character. She's not the wallflower type that you would normally put in a film. Yep. She's not your you know, Luna Lovegood who's just always considered weird by everybody. She's somebody who's portray- actually introduced as superior to everyone else. And then she's the freak. And that's a cool twist on that that I do appreciate in this film. You don't see that almost ever. If I yeah, and like she's the rich girl with the cool dad, and that's she's uh-huh. usually the like the mean girl who is bu- is the bully. Yeah, but she's a mean girl who is bullied, <laughs> like which is fascinating. And she's only a mean girl to adults. Like that's true. I like that aspect too. She's like Mm-mm. adults. No, she was like, I will not let any of you fuck with me. Her dad raised her well. Or not at all. Or, or, or also not. Some, <laughs> somebody raised her well. Somebody raised her. <laughs> somebody that was paid to do so did a decent job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one last thing I want to bring up in terms of aesthetics, uh, if we want to talk about beauty, I feel that needs to be addressed, even if briefly for this film, 
is landscape since nature mm-hmm. and beauty is a huge part of the uh, whole discussion and where it all came from, you know, Kantian and, and Burkean beauty focused primarily on nature. They did focus on the arts, but you know, that's more of a modern thing for us to focus on these days. Wow. The landscape in this movie to put such a gruesome ass story with these beautiful, brightly lit mountains, I thought was an excellent choice. Especially at the beginning when the tour, she like misses the tourist bus and she's running through the hills and she finds the house and they have a chase by the waterfall. So you have these like magnificent giant natural landmarks that are, you know, typically enjoyed as enjoyed by tourists. And then you have her murdered right there. It's it's like a really awesome fucking choice. It's mm-hmm. really cool. There you go with it, like the horror being within the beautiful because you have this pristine waterfall that just looks like it's there to be looked at. And it doesn't give a shit. It's a waterfall. It's just waterfalling, doing its thing. And like, look how pretty I am while you're being decapitated by this window. Yep. <laughs> wild scene and it also kind of, I don't know if, if you had the same feeling for me, it kind of diminishes the, the, the horrifying element of the scene to a certain degree. It, it does add a sense of beauty to the whole sequence because you're just kind of, wow, look at where they are and look what's happening. And, and, and life is just kind of going on and this is happening. It's just like a part of it somehow. That's even scarier to me, though, too. You know what I mean? Like, yes. like this fucking horrible thing is happening in this beautiful place, and no one gives a shit. It's like, ooh, ooh, it's <laughs> That's, brutal. It's fucking brutal, but also something beautiful about that brutality, huh? Yes, yes. I think brutality can be quite beautiful, especially if you have Argento crafting it. He really yeah. knows how to make somebody's anguish just seem like almost appealing at least to witness somehow some way yeah well then also you have like the the at the end it's not a landscape but it's like the moonlit water and like the beauty like, there's like yeah. i feel like it's really pretty in that natural setting like on the water mm-hmm. the co- like oh water is always moving if there's like no constant and if there's something really cool there with like that moonlit water then when the fire when there's fire on the water from the boat exploding i think right exploding. yeah like there is something really beautiful about that natural landscape but then like fire and the fire as like a natural thing and water together it's just a, a really interesting combination for what's going on with the characters on top of that so fair yeah i think it's also like it's it's kind of breathtaking when they run out into that environment because you just got you were literally just in the gloop you were in this basement yeah you were watching this man strangle a woman with a chain that he just broke his thumb systematically and slowly. And we're just like, Oh God. And it's all very urban. It's all very isolated there. Most of the violence in this film takes place in interiors built by people. And then, yeah, you have your bookends, which are these just breathtaking landscapes that are just kind of watching these people have their little drama while they're kind of like lakes in a lake stars are going to shine but yep. uh, you do what you're doing down there yeah <laughs> well the other thing too is that i feel like a lot of argento's movies take place in the city there aren't a lot of yeah. country like kind of natural more natural settings so those moments when they're out i'm thinking of when she has the fly and she's t- mm-hmm. gui- it's guiding her to the house 
she's so tiny and you don't have that sense of yeah. scale as much in a lot of his movies in terms of like people dwarfed by nature. And like, that is always so scary to me. Like, I love it when movies do that. We're like, you're a tiny little person in a big bunch of nature and you don't know what's out there. And I love when horror does that. So it's like those moments where the camera pulls out and she's like a white, kind of like a white blotch running through these like beautiful sloping hills. It's just like, Mm -hmm. there's this kind of terrifying sense of smallness to her that I don't always get from Argento's movies. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. he does a lot of really cool stuff, but that sense of scale he doesn't play with in terms of natural landscape versus people. So it was cool to see that in this film as well. And like how it's not used a lot, but when he uses it, it's like very effective. Oh yeah. I hadn't even thought of it until you mentioned it, but it's true. Most of the time he's focused on more of a kind of claustrophobic approach, really staying in tight on the person as they're going through corridors, they can't really navigate and hiding from somebody. He'll use a lot of uh, labyrinth style spaces to confuse and disorient the character Yeah, to make sure that, you don't know where the killer is coming from. Those those sorts of things. And in this case, yeah, if you're just wide out in the open, sure. She could see a killer coming, but then there's just, yeah, that feeling of like, but then there's nature. Nature isn't like you have nowhere else to go. Especially when the the tour bus leaves them there and there's nowhere else. Like they're not coming back. And you're like, well, shit, like I don't have anything. I don't have anywhere else to go. Like I'm stuck Mm. here. And that's terrifying in and of itself. So yeah, it's a very unnerving scene. I felt. And, you brought up a point that actually I want to touch upon real quick. I know I said this is the last thing, but uh, one, one last thing then uh, of the last things um, is the fact that she wears white quite often. And I do feel that this is kind of like a gradual progression for her character. I know she, I think she wore a bit of white when they first introduced her, but for the most part, when she's just talking with her housemate or her roommate, she's wearing like this black top and she's got like gold on her attire and really just this flashy, look how rich I am kind of clothing constantly. She's dressed like a powerful businesswoman from that time period. Uh, and then the moment she starts sleepwalking, that's when we start getting more pastels and I know they're nightgowns and stuff, but it was interesting to me that for the last, I think 40 minutes of this film, she has that more angelic, white, chaste, beautiful doll kind of appearance to her that makes her contrast with everything quite dramatically with everything else being more earth-toned or, or dark and shadowy. I don't know if this uh, was something that struck you or watching as well. I didn't notice the progression. I just noticed her wearing a lot of like white kind of flowy clothes, mm-hmm. but I think you that makes sense like as the film progresses and also kind of as she taps more into her powers because it, it feels yeah. like she's she's kind of known she's had this connection but with this this kind of movie marks when she's finally honing in on them uh-huh. so it's like she gets this ethereal quality to her where she finally taps into like her potential as something like with her otherworldly kind of situation with her psychic connection to bugs that like differentiates her from other people so it's not necessarily appear like white is always purity but here i didn't see it as purity it kind of felt like Mm -hmm. a more like ethereal kind of otherworldly vibe and setting her on like a different plane than everybody else that would explain the visual contrast then as well i agree with you there that they chose such an interesting character to explore the other with really yeah given her position given her background given the jennifer connellyness of it all uh, <laughs> for her to be the most otherly character next to, I guess, the boy in the basement, you know, that's, it's, it's an interesting way to do that. 
And yeah, so this movie, if I were to succinctly put what I find beautiful, the film, and I don't know if you're going to mirror or, or say something similar, but uh, there is that sense of celebration of female empowerment, but also empowerment in general in your otherness. And if there are any unique qualities about oneself that have been a burden to you just in the fact that you are quote unquote not normal that this film does a lot to try to tell you that the things that make you you are the things that make you strong as well and can weaknesses can be a strength depending on our perspectives uh now granted a superpower such as controlling bugs doesn't have a lot of backs you know downsides to it so maybe we could have seen some sort of weakness in there but I did like that message, and I do think that they, in the aesthetics, hammered that home really nicely. But uh, if you were to succinctly put it, what what would you say then is the, a big takeaway for you from phenomena? Like a set from like aesthetics point of view. Yeah, yeah. My takeaway, besides every like what you've said, especially about like otherness, it's kind of similar, but in terms of like there is something really to be said about films that take stereotypical beauty and stereotypical disgust and put them together in a really fascinating way to create a character that subverts expectations of what you see in horror movies and in Argento movies in particular. I think there's something really, I don't empowering, empowering sort of, but mostly just like not unafraid of confronting those beauty standards and not uh-huh. just going between like beautiful versus ugly, but also looking at that gray area where there is a beautiful person with an ugly power and there right. is that marriage in the middle and a little bit of a gray area that he's kind of investigating in a very exaggerated way, obviously, but it's a much deeper examination of aesthetics than I think you would initially think uh-huh. upon watching it. And I think I really appreciate what Argento is doing in this movie it's so different from his other other works in terms of like outright kind of like playing with setting architecture lighting. Right. But I also think it's one of his most fascinating in that regard as well. Couldn't say I disagree with that at all. In fact, I have to say I agree with it quite strongly. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that deviation from his norm is, is very evident in this film. And I think it's for that reason, one of his films that is just like a must for anybody who's into this genre or even adjacent yeah. to it. If you know what you think a Jalo film is, or at least what an Argento film is, you, if you haven't seen Phenomena, you, you need to see the the way he uses the aesthetics here. And I, 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 for, I, from the perspective of aesthetics, I have to appreciate a film that does some work to explore that without just having it there <laughs> basically yeah exactly know, the I, I liked how you're pointing out that the aesthetics in this film are not so much superficially there they are part of the whole point and part of the whole plot of the film to a certain degree or at least it can help change the way we engage with aesthetics you know, you do have to go yeah. a little deeper in your thought process here to pick up on these things. And so if you've seen Phenomena before and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember any of that crap. I just remember the bug lady. 
<laughs> the weird kid at the end of the movie. Then you lost me. Go watch it again. We've now yes. hopefully primed you to see this in a different light. Well. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I said help. I didn't say <laughs> <laughs> So who knows? Maybe you just think we're completely full of shit. And you can let us know then. <laughs> I'm sure you will. It'll be fun. So then I think that's, uh, I think we've tapped everything. I don't know if there was any other aspect of the film that you wanted to dive into. I don't think so. I think we had everything for me. Excellent. Well, then I'm going to round off. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including The Scream Teens, hosted by Gory Corey and Lena, The Road to Nowhere, hosted by R.C. Hara, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, shockaholic.org. So dear listeners, what are your thoughts on phenomena? I'd love to hear your thoughts either on Twitter at beautyhorrorpod via email at beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com or in our newly formed community space on Discord. You can find a link to that on my Twitter page. Um, and if you want even more content, you can be a subscriber to our coffee page. There are multiple tiers to choose from depending on your interests. The awesome thing is that all tiers get access to a new monthly podcast entitled The Good, The Agreeable, and The Beautiful, in which I will review a horror film chosen by subscribers based on Kant's judgments of taste. Uh, it's a really fun segment that uh, I've had episode zero here on Anatomy of Scream on, uh, just to kind of fill some time. Please check out that episode. I discuss all the concepts there, and I review Hellraiser from 1987 under mm. the, uh, you know, yes, the, the, the different layers there of good, agreeable, and beautiful. I want to thank you again, Mary Beth, for taking the time and having this conversation with me. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and it's been an interesting movie to discuss for sure. Uh, <laughs> so where can all the people find you out there, and is there anything specific you'd like to plug right now? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at MB McAndrews. That's where you'll find all the things I share that I write, I work on. Um, I also have two podcasts. I have Scarred for Life, which you can follow at Scarred Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And I also have uh, Watched Once Never Again, which is at Wona Podcast at W-O-N-A, Scarred for Life. My co-host Terry and I talk to people from the horror community about the movies that scared them as kids. And Watch Once Never Again, I host with Daxi Bobbin, and we talk about uh, terrifying, disturbing movies um, throughout cinema, not just horror. So give those a listen. Um, I work over at Dread Central. Follow us at Dread Central. There's some really cool stuff coming up. I'm super stoked for a lot of the new content that we're coming out and people we're publishing. So give us a follow. That would be amazing. And I have cool announcements coming up. So follow me on Twitter to hear those announcements. I can't talk about much yet, but there's some cool stuff coming up. So if you follow me, you'll find out. Ooh. Yay. There's, a, so. there's an exciting little, uh, you know, point punctuation there for everything. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, congratulations again on the job at Dread Central. Uh, Thank I you. You're, you're going to do great for them. That's a great acquisition. Uh, and Thank if you, you say that there's exciting things coming up, Y'all, rest assured, there's some exciting things coming up. So keep an eye on Mary Beth's socials. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us in talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Scream Pod Squad.